California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the California Underground. My name's Phil, and obviously lots of things going on. I hope everyone's staying safe and healthy at home, even though at this point I'm pretty sure everyone is losing their damn mind because they've just gotten so frustrated. And we've been busy doing our part to help combat what is going on out there in all the lockdowns. And um, obviously we talked about last week with the... A uh, legal letter that was sent out, I can confirm that has been into the it has gotten into the hands of Supervisor Jim Desmond, um, Supervisor Diane Jacobs, and Supervisor Greg Cox, who is the county chair. Diane Jacobs is the supervisor of District Two, which is all out east. Uh, Jim Desmond is up north, and he's been one who's been fighting for this probably the most out of anybody. And um, it's important that it got into his hands because I feel like he's probably the one person who could use it. Still waiting on a response. I'm sure they're very busy in terms of uh, what's going on and everything they're trying to keep up with. And I'm sure they're inundated, which is a good thing. I'm sure they're inundated with all the calls and emails and people responding to what's going on. And uh, I hope to hear a response soon. Of course, however, we are ready to proceed with any sort of legal action if they don't uh, work a little bit faster on trying to get these lockdowns lifted and start to let businesses reopen. Um, but with that, let's start with our out of the gate monologue because there's a lot to get to today. As always, scrolling through social media, speaking with other people or just watching the news, you wonder why our response to the virus has been so much more different than the past pandemics. Swine flu, bird flu, SARS, Ebola, they all came and went out with massive they all came and went without massive shutdowns and quarantines of healthy individuals. And it dawned on me the other day while I was staying in line at the local post office. Everyone in line was spaced out their appropriate six feet until another person walked in and asked to get by to their P.O. box. Now, the person in line could not move up because that would violate the six feet rule for the person in front of them. Six feet back and they would be violating my six feet radius. So instead, the person in line just stood there while the other fumed over him not getting out of the way or moving his six feet. That's when it dawned on me. This person didn't care about anyone else's safety but their own. As long as their safe space was protected, to hell with anyone else, they got theirs. In a world where we see college campuses setting up safe spaces for people where they can hide from dissenting points of view, it's becoming more and more common for these individuals to screech at people who invade their sacred safe spaces. This attitude has now permeated most of society. That which offends slash harms me is not tolerable. It must be stopped at all costs. My safety is of the utmost importance. My fear that something bad might happen to me is more important than your lack of fear and willingness to take a risk. This mindset has come full circle now with the outbreak of this recent pandemic. You see countless people shout down protesters or those who wish to get out on their lives, get out and on with their lives. They phrase it brilliantly to say that they have compassion, quote, you wanting to open up or go back to work puts my whole community at risk. Now, change out whole community with my personal safety and space, and it starts to make sense. And it wasn't just until did most people really care about what other people's really did. 
It was not until this notion of spaces did everyone start to pry into someone's personal business. Your thoughts are hate speech. You must be stopped. No longer can people live and let live. They now have to stomp out anything they disagree with or find threatening. Which now is the threat that someone going back to work or reopening their business might be in some tangential way more harm than good. Forget that the consequences to that person or anybody associated with them. This single person might be harmed and therefore the whole world has to shut down and bend to their will. Now, it sounds ridiculous because it is. Your fear should not have any effect on those who are not afraid to return to some form of normalcy. It is peak selfishness to presume an entire community of people have to sit idly by and wait for you to get over your fears so that the rest of us can return to normal. This is projection at its finest. They lob insults and accusations at normal people saying they are selfish or not considerate. When in reality, depriving people of their rights simply because you feel threatened is not only selfish, it's childish. And the ultimate irony here is that no one is forcing these safe spacers to go anywhere. If you feel safe and cozy from this virus in your home, then you are free to remain where you are. No one is coming to drag you out of your safe space. But what if their decision to leave their safe space hinges on whether they get to keep their job or not? Well, then they might feel something they've never felt before, which is empathy for those they have shouted down. Uh, so with that, it was an interesting story when I was at the post office and this woman did walk in and um, pretty much insult this man who was standing there because he didn't want to move up or back or let her get out of the way. And uh, some profane insults were thrown his way. Um, I don't think he heard him because it was under her breath, under her breath, but to the point where I could hear it. And that's when I thought that maybe the post office might be the most inner circle in the most innermost circle of this coronavirus hell, you have government regulations, so they have to abide by all these federal government regulations. Most people aren't really happy to go to the post office as is. And now you add in the fact that they have to stand six feet apart, uh, as well as uh, they also have the, the sneeze guards where you can't stand close to the person, but you have to hand them something, which then they touch so I don't really know what the sneeze guard is for. And then you touch the pad and they don't wipe down the pad. But regardless, I mean, I think the post office has become the innermost circle of coronavirus hell. And that's that's where this all happened. That's where I sort of got this idea that it's not really it's not about these people trying to act compassionate. Because in true compassion, they would say. And I'm, I, I hear this from people all over and people that you wouldn't think are turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to a lot of the people who are really suffering out there. And they don't even want to hear the other side of the argument. They don't even want to hear that people are losing their jobs, that people can't pay for rent, that people cannot continue to live in this lockdown world. And I'm starting to believe, I, have to, I, I tried to grapple with it. Why are people so obsessed with this notion that what you do really affects me? It's because it all comes back around full circle in this idea of safe spaces. This idea that my safe space is more important than your liberties or your rights. And everybody is trying to say that. And it's, it's the same exact thing when you think about people who are screeching about, 
your free thought or your freedom of speech is hate speech, so therefore it must be suppressed at all cost. The way you live, the person you vote for offends me. And then you start to see that correlation. You start to see the similarities. They're almost the same exact people who, because it might offend or burst their little bubble of safe space, that's when they get really upset. And this, it, it, it was almost encapsulated perfectly in this situation at the post office, mostly because I'm sitting there thinking, well, this lady doesn't care that this guy's going to have to move up a little bit and then stop, you know, be less than six feet from the person in front of him. And then if he moves back, he's less than six feet in front of me. So what was her solution is that we were going to be in this big six feet limbo and everybody in the entire post office is going to have to move up so she can scoot by and get to her post office box instead of just saying, okay, well, if you just maybe move a step out of the way so I could get by as opposed to, I want you to move completely out of the way. And she made a whole stink about how it wasn't six feet. I don't know where this lady wanted this guy to go, but it doesn't matter because even though there was a post office full of people who were all diligently wearing their masks and being six feet apart on the little markers. It Her whole thing was the rules are out the window because I need to get by and I need my six feet. So that's where I start to realize that's that may be one reason why this is so different than before. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this whole pandemic is different than before. Uh, but this is probably one of the biggest reasons, I think, why this has become so politicized, so hotly debated, so personal for a lot of people that they can't even see the struggle that other people are going through at this point, that they can't step back and say, you know, I understand people need to go back to work. So let's figure out how we can all go back to work. No, no. Any mention of reopening the economy, any mention of going back to work is immediately met with you're a science denier and you're not a doctor. And all the doctors and experts are saying that it's not safe to go back, even though that's not true because saying all the doctors would mean every single doctor in America agrees. But we have evidence that a lot of doctors don't agree with these shutdowns. And in fact, there's probably a lot of healthcare workers who don't agree with this shutdown. So You know, you can't say literally all doctors and all experts because they're not all saying the same thing. And that's usually the 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 argument, how it goes. You can see it on social media. You see it on, uh, you know, Nextdoor, which is basically Facebook for your local neighborhood. And um, if you ever want to get a kick or just get completely frustrated with the people who live in your neighborhood and find all the Karens and Bobs, you just go on Nextdoor. And that's where um, where you're going to find all of them complaining and screeching about how somebody's not wearing a mask or somebody wasn't six feet away from them or someone didn't let them through at the post office. That's where you'll find all that stuff. Um, but you see the same argument over and over and over again. Essentially, essentially that you can't even think about reopening because it's going to hurt me. And I don't want you going out to your job because you might potentially infect me. How that happens, they don't really seem to have an answer for how you reopening your business hurts them, but instead they couch it in this idea that, well, these experts over here say that it's dangerous to do so. Sure, but there's also experts over here who say it's not dangerous to do so and that we should probably get back to our normal lives. So, um, 
that's where I started to see maybe one one similarity between the safe spaces. The people who are these safe spacers and this whole your liberties end where my fear and and being offended starts. Basically, that's where it, that's where it all kind of comes down to. I don't care that you have these constitutional rights or natural rights granted by law or by nature. You're basically if I'm afraid or I fear being offended or harmed, your liberties are uh, suspended indefinitely. That's how this works. And it's scary. And it's scary because I think there's a lot of people like that right now. And like I've said previously in, in previous podcasts, there's no need to have a huge police state. If you have a army of Karens and Bobs running around Snitching on people, shouting down people, making it so people don't want to actually get things. They don't want to reopen or they just kind of give up and say there is no reopening. But I don't think people are giving up. I don't think people are really giving up. I think it's only getting hotter and and more intense. I think the pressure is mounting every single week for these officials to do something. So you're starting to see a lot of counties across the country who are in these blue states, not necessarily blue states, but states run by Democrat governors. Um, like Pennsylvania, there is a county that just said it's going to reopen. Um, there's counties here in California that basically just said, look, we're, we're reopening. Screw you, Gavin Newsom. It doesn't matter to us. We're not that we're not affected by this. We're not affected. We did, we've had either zero to little to no cases up here in the state of Jefferson, for example. There's no reason for us to be shut down like LA, even though LA thinks that three months is a a logical way to be shut down. Um, But in good news, good news, special election this week, Mike Garcia uh, was a fighter pilot. He won the California 25th. This was a big deal because of a couple of things. First, it's the first time a Republican has held this seat since 1998. 22 years, this seat has gone being held by a Democrat, basically a Democratic stronghold. As almost a sure thing as you can get. When you hold it for two decades, it's a pretty good Democratic stronghold. What's even bigger is that he won by around 10 to 11% on election night. Um, now, I mean, I say he was up by 10 to 11% on election night, meaning by the time the Democratic opponent conceded, probably still the same. It didn't look like she was gaining any ground in the mail-in ballots. She had already formally conceded the race is over. He had formally won by the next day, but winning by double digits. And this is a district that Hillary Clinton in 2016 won by more than 50%. Now think about that for a minute. A Republican in California flipped a district that was that Hillary Clinton won with more than 50% of the vote in 2016. And this seat has been held by Democrats for 22 years. The last time a Republican held this seat, to give you context, kids who are in college right now were not born. 9-11 had not happened yet. Bill Clinton was still president. We were still listening to CDs. And I'm pretty sure the Backstreet Boys were just bursting on on the scene. So to give you some idea of how far back this goes and how long ago a Republican has held this seat, it's been a long time. Now, 
What does this necessarily mean for California in general? I'm excited, but at the same time, I'm also not breaking out the champagne and saying there's a red wave coming. It, it's very um, it's very encouraging to see a Republican win in such a strong Democratic hold. And people will say it's because of the special election or maybe Katie Hill was so uh, offensive that maybe people turned out. But this is a different time. This is something is going on here. And I think this might be a good time for Republicans in California. If there's ever a chance for conservatives and Republicans to get their message out. Now, mind you, just by numbers, if you add independents and Republicans together, they outnumber registered Democratic voters. And I'm not saying Republicans have to get every single independent because they're not going to get every single independent. Now is the time that Republicans need to start making inroads on these people who are in the middle or independent. You have to strike while the iron is hot. Because right now, people are feeling as if their liberties have been infringed upon. And a lot of people who may have been sitting on the sideline, who didn't vote, who didn't care, this may be the breaking point to get people to wake up. And I'm not saying that we're going to throw everyone out. But if you can make inroads here and there, can you take Orange County back to be a Republican stronghold again? Can you take more parts of San Diego back? to make it a Republican stronghold? Can you start to take spots here and there and start putting pressure on the Democrats? Possibly. It wasn't that long ago we had a Republican gubernatorial candidate, even though I've numerous times have lambasted him for being a feckless loser who didn't do what he was supposed to do and never took Gavin Newsom to task and basically just handed the governorship to Gavin Newsom. If there was anyone who fights more on Fox News or runs to Fox News to show what a tough guy he is, it's John Cox. But he could never fight in the governor's race for some odd reason. It was it was incredible how weak he was. He he agreed to phone in debates and all these awful things. He never put Gavin Newsom's feet to the fire. He campaigned in strong Republican districts that didn't really matter. Yeah, okay, if you're going to campaign in places like Stockton or Central Valley, like you already know that you're going to carry those little areas. A good Republican governor has to be able to go into the cities and start to take some of those voters back. So it is a good sign. It's a good sign. And I I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, though. Mike Garcia is probably he sounds like a good candidate. I don't know too much about him. He was a former uh, fighter pilot, which is always exciting. It's always good on the the advertising. It's always good on the bill that you see a former fighter pilot. Um, that always resounds well with conservatives. But the but the fact that he won in such a strong Democratic district is should be a good lesson for the California GOP to say we can actually start flipping some of these districts. We're not going to turn the whole state red. We're not going to turn into Texas overnight. But if more people start waking up because of what is going on in the in this state, the frustration with Gavin Newsom to say, and people, maybe this is the thing that really wakes people up to what Gavin Newsom is doing. And he's tried to play this balanced, 
approach as best as possible. But at the same time, it's not coming off as a balanced approach. It's coming off as I'm being overly abundantly cautious because of a death rate that is less than 1% here in California. And even though most of it is really concentrated in L.A. County, the rest of the state basically has to abide by L.A. County rules. And then it doesn't help when he runs to Instagram or Twitter and starts tweeting about how we need a trillion dollars in bailout money, which is conveniently the amount of money that Gavin Newsom needs to help fund the unfunded pension liabilities, because that's how much we are in debt to pension liabilities is a trillion dollars. So regardless of that, this may be the tipping point for some progress here in California. I'm not saying it's going to flip overnight. The fight is, is we're, we're, if this is basically the beginning of the fight, this is like climbing Mount Everest. And we've just walked up the first feet, 50 feet of Mount Everest. We still got a long way to go. There's a lot of work to be done, but there's been more activism, more enthusiasm, more excitement for people in this state to get back to conservative values, to get back to an idea of a limited state government, a smaller state government, because they see the effects of a large state government run by someone who does not appreciate the legislature, does not appreciate the judiciary. He thinks he is king and God all in one. He can go out and spend a billion dollars on faulty masks and think that's okay. Even though the federal government stepped in and said, well, you can't buy a billion dollars worth of masks from China because that's right. Right now, we're not on good terms with them. But that's basically where we're at right now. And there is hope. There is hope for the future. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of enthusiasm right now. California GOP, you have to catch this excitement, you catch this lightning in a bottle right now. This could be the, the revolution. This could be the coalescing of all of the factors that are needed to really start changing hearts and minds here in California to get people who may be Democrat to vote Republican, maybe get all those independents to start moving over. Maybe it's time we start thinking about getting a good gubernatorial candidate finding who we're going to run in the next couple of years. You know, is it out of the realm of possibility to look at someone like a Kevin Faulkner? You know, he's got his flaws as a Republican, but he still is a Republican. But we've talked about this before. California needs a, a California Republican needs to be different than let's say a Nebraska Republican. They're totally different. So we need to start cultivating this idea of who is a California Republican. Is it Tamika Jordan who's running for Congress? Uh, is it Kim Young who's running for Congress? Is it people like Mike Garcia who has want, ran and won a congressional seat here in California? Is that what the California Republican Party needs to start promoting? That this is, we are a party for prosperity, for limited government, for more opportunities, uh, for any race, creed, color, income bracket. We're here because we want to create opportunity and prosperity for everybody in this state. Not just the uber wealthy, not just all the celebrities and the tech gods for everybody. Um, so it's good news. Went a little longer on that than I wanted to, but it's important. 
So the other news that came out this week that a lot of people have been contacting me about is the ruling in Wisconsin. Uh, I'm going to want to play a little audio clip for you as well of one of the justices um, and go through it a little bit because I read it yesterday. I just want to make sure my listeners understand really what this means. But first, here's the audio clip. Counsel, as you begin your argument, I'd like to direct your attention to Article 1, Section 1 of the Wisconsin Constitution, which reads in part that all people have certain inherent rights. Among these are liberty. To secure these rights, governments are instituted, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. My question for you is, where in the Constitution did the people of Wisconsin confer authority on a single unelected cabinet secretary to compel almost 6 million people to stay at home and close their businesses and face imprisonment if they don't comply with no input from the legislature without the consent of the people. Isn't it the very definition of tyranny for one person to order people to be imprisoned for going to work among other ordinarily lawful activities where does the Constitution say that's permissible, counsel? Now, obviously, some scathing words there uh, from Justice um, Brantley. And I didn't, they didn't include what the uh, counselor's response to that was. But obviously, it's sort of the bigger, higher moral ground issue of what's going on here. And it's a, a big question that is being asked across this country right now, which is that where in the Constitution does it allow for someone to, and this is just the Wisconsin Constitution that they're talking about, mind you, but in the a lot of these constitutions, especially the California State Constitution, are all modeled somewhat mostly close to the American U.S. Constitution. And basically she's asking where does it give them the right to have one person and we're going to talk a little bit about why this is nuanced. So it's a good thing, but it's not really, uh, it's not super applicable. People hear the headline, but they don't, you need to read the case a little bit more. Her, her basic idea is question is where is it saying the constitution, the Wisconsin constitution that you have the ability to name one person who can therefore shut down an entire state, shut down all these businesses based on just their own authority. And that's what you're seeing across a lot of counties here in California, especially in L.A., where the L.A. County public health person goes out and says, we're going to be closed for another three months without any explanation as to why, without any explanation as to how the county is going to recover after being locked down for almost five months at this point. Uh, almost essentially a half of a year, LA wants to be shut down. 2020 is going to go down as a year that LA, the lights went out in LA and they were shut down for almost half of a year at this point. Uh, there's a quote from the case that I want to read to you that I thought stuck out to me a little bit. And it says, there is no pandemic exception to the fundamental liberties the Constitution safeguards. Indeed, the individual rights secured by the Constitution do not disappear during a public health crisis. These individual rights, including the protections in the Bill of Rights made applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment, are always in force and restrain government action. So again, it's going back to that same question that Justice Brantley had, which is, where does it say in the Constitution 
that if a pandemic comes along, a virus comes along, we get to throw everything out. There's a lot of these questions are floating around right now. I want to talk a little bit about the takings clause as well, which I sat in on a federal society uh, phone conference today talking about the takings clause and cases under the takings clause and basically what the takings clause is. So the thing I want to distinguish here about the Wisconsin ruling, while it is good and it looks good because obviously everyone thinks, you know, if the Wisconsin Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional, then obviously it can start to spread across the country like wildfire. Yes and no. They make big constitutional arguments. They make big, huge, overarching arguments in their statements. But really, the case came down to one thing. And that is the fact that this DHS secretary, uh, I'm assuming it's the Department of Health Services secretary, and she's only appointed uh, at this point an acting secretary. She's not even the fully confirmed secretary. The issue came about because in the rulemaking procedure in Wisconsin under their statutes, a person cannot make a rule. She didn't follow the right rulemaking procedures um, as an as an administrator in the executive branch of Wisconsin. And therefore, that's why it's struck down because she did not follow the rules. It also goes to say that the reason that there are provisions in place, and this is maybe where the argument can be adapted to states across the country, including here in California, is that the state, you have these officials who are appointed by the executive, correct? They're not elected necessarily. I mean, yes, you elect the executive who then elect, who then appoints all these people. And they are starting to make rules through their admin administrations or their agencies. And it's effectively being treated like law, which abrogates the responsibility of the legislature to actually have to make laws. And in a bigger picture, this is a problem. We see this with Congress right now. Congress does not pass specific laws anymore because what they do and this is really what has created what a lot of people are calling the fourth branch of the American government is the administrative state. And the administrative state is basically they make a law and Congress has power to delegate some of their authority to agencies to kind of fill in the blanks. So a law will be written in a very broad manner. But then the law is handed off to these agencies and the agencies come up with rules and regulations. And those are the specific things you have to follow because that's where it comes from. And it has the backing of the executive branch. So in this particular case, the Wisconsin Supreme Court had a problem with this one particular person making what is essentially law. Their reasoning was that yes, there is a emergency measure in place, an emergency exception in place, if there is a pandemic or a public health crisis, as there is here in San Diego. And it's probably the same all over California. But I just know here in San Diego, the health or the health officer has that right. If there is a public health issue, they can start to enact what is necessary to prevent and protect the public. 
But effectively, what this person has done, this agent, has made a rule that is so overbroad, it has effectively become law. And you cannot legislate from her position. And the emergency provision was really only granted, and it's been granted all over the country, to be able to efficiently respond to emergency situations like this. And in the beginning, they conceded that, yes, in the beginning, when we did not know what was going on, when we didn't know how bad this was going to be, when the initial projections were that 2 million people were going to die from this, hundreds of thousands were going to be infected, that this was going to absolutely decimate and just take an enormous amount of human life, that at that point, a health officer can step in and say, because of public health, we need to step in and issue these emergency orders. Because the belief was that you cannot wait for legislatures to postulate or make these decisions on their own because it would take too long in the face of emergencies like this. However, at this point, we are now, what, two months, eight weeks into a pandemic. You cannot continue to make more emergency orders that effectively act as emergency orders as we continue to learn more about this virus. And that at this point, legislatures would have had the opportunity to come up with laws and what to do. And so abrogating or giving away that authority from the legislature is effectively what they're arguing. And I'm not a Wisconsin constitutional scholar, but I'm sure it's all the same anyway, is that you can't just have the legislature say, okay, agencies, you make all the rules and the laws, and we're just going to sit back. That's not the role of the legislature. So how does that apply really here in San Diego? It's basically the same thing. And here in San Diego, you have these rules that allow the public health officers to enact certain rules to, uh, and this is from California law, to protect human health, what is necessary and what may be necessary. Now, the language is important, may be necessary, not shall be necessary, may be necessary. And the the authority granted in that statute is probably what is going to really come up in a lot of lawsuits. What is necessary? Is it necessary? And, and this is part of the letter that we wrote. Is it necessary to quarantine all healthy individuals and shut down all these businesses for a virus that we now know a lot more about? We know the death rate and the mortality rate is a lot lower than we originally expected. There's probably thousands of people walking around who had it, and it was so mild that it passed through their body without so much as a sniffle or a cough. So at this point, is there a necessary reason for more of these emergency orders? And based on, if I'm, real, if I'm reading this correctly, Wisconsin is basically saying there is no reason to continue having these emergency orders from these agencies. That your authority to run emergency orders effectively ends when it's gone on long enough that the legislature could have decided on their own whether to implement some sort of law or something. And that's what I think is really the case here. That the, you have someone like uh, Dr. Wooten here in San Diego who continues to make, and, and for the same effect up in LA, they continue to make these emergency orders. An emergency order this, emergency order that. Well, at this point, 
Yet two months ago, there was a big difference between what we knew then to what we know now. We know now the stats. We know now the mortality rate. We know now a lot more about this virus and how deadly it is. And to continue abdicating and letting these public health officials figure this, do this on their own, is it constitutional or are they overstepping their boundaries? So I don't know how the, the, the logic itself is applicable to California in a broader sense. Is the law case precedent necessarily for California? No, it's not case precedent for California. It's persuasive. What they would call is persuasive law. And, and by that, I mean, it's not binding law. So there's a difference between persuasive law and binding law. Binding law is when it is from a court of higher authority. So if the California Supreme Court ruled something, all the courts below it are then bound by that ruling and they have to follow that. It's case precedent. They have to follow what the California Supreme Court rules or for that matter, any court higher than them. Superior courts have to follow anything from the court of appeals and that's how we keep case precedent and that's how we keep things consistent. Wisconsin Supreme Court is not binding on California, but it is persuasive. So you can add it to a lawsuit and say, this is what they said in Wisconsin. Let's see if it applies here in California. So uh, with that, I just want to explain really the nuances of the Wisconsin lawsuit and how it relates to here in California. Next thing I want to talk about real quickly is this idea of the takings clause. And this is from a case, uh, Botini versus City of San Diego. So it's a California case. Basically what the takings clause is, if you're not familiar with it, is it's under the Fifth Amendment, is that um, private property shall not be taken from uh, from individuals or from citizens without due process and just compensation. Um Basically, it's the idea of eminent domain that a government can't just come in and take your property without any due process or without just compensation. And the idea of that is that you don't want the government to effectively take your property um, without at least being compensated for it or at least without due process. Uh, And they go on to quote a couple things that I think are interesting because they talk a little bit about the California Constitution as well as the U.S. Constitution. It states that both the United States and California Constitutions guarantee real property owners just compensation when their land is taken for a public use. These constitutional guarantees do not prohibit the taking of private property, but instead place a condition on the exercise of that power. Stated differently, the state and federal takings clauses are designed not to limit the governmental interference with property rights per se, but rather to secure compensation in the event of otherwise proper interference amounting to a taking. However, government regulation of private property may in some instances be so onerous that its effect is tantamount to a direct appropriation or ouster and such regulatory takings may be compensable as a taking. Two, categor- two categories of regulatory action are generally deemed per se takings for Fifth Amendment purposes. First, where government requires an owner to suffer a permanent physical invasion of her property. However minor, it must provide just compensation. So what that means is that there can be a physical invasion on your property. For example, if a government needs to come in and they need to put a cell phone tower or a pipe through your property, That's a physical invasion, and they're going to have to justly compensate for that. They can't just come in and say, well, we're going to run a pipe through your yard, and uh, there's nothing you can do about it. You do have to be compensated for that. 
A second categorical rule applies to regulations that completely deprive an owner of all economically beneficial uses of her property. The primary considerations are the economic impact of the regulation on the claimant and the extent to which the regulation has interfered with distinct investment-backed expectations. In addition, the character of the governmental action, for instance, whether it amounts to a physical invasion or instead merely affects property interests through some public program adjusting the benefits and burdens of economic life to promote the common good, may be relevant in discerning when a, whether a taking has occurred. So then they go on to talk a lot about what this, uh, there's this other standard and it's called um, the substantially advances formula, which is in another case. Um, and the discussion basically of this case is whether or not a taking that basically deprives you of all your economic interests or your direct, there, there's different tests for a takings clause. And let me break it down for you. I don't want to go through a law school class. Basically, if the government comes in and one invades on your property, for example, they invade your property by uh, they put up a cell phone tower or uh, they put a pipe through there or something like that. That's a physical invasion. You're entitled to a just compensation because it's a taking. They've effectively taken part of your land. Another issue is when it's so been economically deprived that it's economically useless to the person. So they could take a piece of property and um, basically do something to it. And that's usually government. Let's say they you have a beachfront piece of property and they take the beach and you no longer own the beach. That's an issue of, is it economically useless now? Another issue is whether or not there's direct backed investment or direct investment backed expectations. So if you had invested in a property, and this is where I think this might be the two prongs, the two last prongs, might be a good argument for where the takings clause can be used by businesses to argue that the government, what they are effectively doing is illegal or unconstitutional under the Fifth Amendment of the takings clause, as well as the California Constitution, because there is a takings clause within the California Constitution, is that whether or not were you economically deprived of all benefit of your business. Well, a lot of these businesses right now that are shut down because of these government mandates, there's a possibility. They've been economically deprived of their private property. If nothing else, it's not only business owners, it's the the renters and the landlords. If the landlords can't collect rent because the businesses are closed, that's an economic, uh, economically non trying to get this right, economically non-beneficial to the person who holds that property. Final thing is direct backed or direct investment backed. I feel like I'm back in law school again, trying to repeat these off the top of my head. Direct investment backed expectations, which is that if you invested in a business or in a property with this certain idea and the government comes in and takes it or prevents any sort of economic use for it, that is also a taking. So this other argument that they have is called substantially advances. Now, this is an interesting twist, substantially advances, because it's not necessarily part of the takings analysis. So we can we can definitely show that these people, that these businesses, these landowners, private property owners have been economically deprived 
We can easily show that two months without being open, two months without possibly being paid rent, all because the government has effectively taken their property, taken that right for them to use it. But substantially advances is for a common good. This is where I think it might be an interesting question. Substantially advances a common good. And we know from the numbers, and we've talked about it ad nauseum here and a lot, is this for the common good? Is shutting down all of these businesses something that substantially advances the common good of California and its citizens? And I know probably most people who listen to this are probably going to say no. There is This does not substantially advance the common good. If the common good is to prevent the spread of a disease that we now know has less than a 1% mortality rate of those who get it, is shutting down the entire economy and preventing anybody from going anywhere or going to patron any business, anything that substantially advances it. It may overshoot the target by a lot, but it doesn't substantially advance that goal. It's an interesting argument. And I want to talk about because a lot of business owners have been asking me, what is the repercussions of the government basically shutting me down? And a lot making it so I can't make a living or earn anything because of all these shutdowns. And there might be an argument in there. And we're in uncharted waters. So this could be new law. This could be new case law in the sense that you'd have to look at the intent. You'd have to look at why the takings clause was added to the Constitution. I think you'd have to go back to a real strong originalist idea of why was the takings clause first put in? Was it to prevent the government from confiscating private property because the whole thing, the whole idea of America and the American dream is that you can have private property and that they didn't want to dissuade people from opening businesses or buying private property? Is there an intent there? There could be an interesting argument. While there is case law, I think we're in uncharted waters and I think there may be a compelling argument. I would say, indeed, if we, if, Anything, if we work towards legal action against the county or anything like that, if my firm works towards legal action against the county, that's an argument I'm going to actually think about and craft in such a way that is the takings clause, are these businesses basically being deprived of their business and their economic benefit without due process, without justification? And the final thing I want to lead you with, and this is from the California Constitution, because I like to inform you of the California Constitution as well as the U.S. Constitution. Indeed, it has been long recognized the purpose of Section 19 of Article 1 of the California Constitution, as well as the purpose of the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, is to ensure that individual property owners are not compelled to bear burdens or incur costs that, in fairness and justice, should be borne by the public at large. So I'll leave you with that quote. Um, There is an article I wanted to get to, and I will post it in the show notes. It is a good article. It is from American Greatness, and it says California is ready to get rid of Gavin Newsom. Maybe I'll do a video on Instagram this week to kind of review it because I think it's an excellent article. Um, But this was a good episode because I want to really dive into a lot of this case law. If you like this type of analysis, if you like this legal analysis, 
Um, because it's no secret at this point that I am an attorney here in California, that I work on this stuff, that I do geek out on this constitutional law stuff. If you think that this stuff is interesting, you can please let me know. Again, I've said this before and I'll keep saying it over and over and over again. This show is not to be my soapbox. This is not to be me standing up on my own soapbox saying, these are my thoughts and I want everyone to listen. I want people to use this as a vehicle to share thoughts, to share ideas, to let people know that they're people out there who think like you, who agree with you. I want to hear your questions. I want to hear what you have to say. It could be questions. It could be thoughts, whether you want me to respond to it, whether or not. Um, That's the point of this show is not to just be a soapbox. It's to be a soapbox for everybody, not just for me. And I want people to use it that way um, and use this show as that platform for them. For, and with that, I want to end. Um, stay safe, everybody. Stay healthy out there. Remember, follow me on Instagram. That's usually the, the place where I do the most activity. I do a lot of videos just talking about articles, um, posting random thoughts. Um, of course, funny memes because that's we live in a meme culture right now. Uh, also, if you want to email a question into the show, California Underground at ProtonMail.com. You want to contact me or anything like that, California Underground at ProtonMail.com. Dot com. If you want to send in a voice message, and let me explain this. Everyone says, well, what's a voice message? Robin? Imagine you want to call into a talk show, like you want to call into Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh or Mark Levin or Andrew, you know, any of those guys. You want to call into those shows and be on the radio. You can call in to this podcast. You can call in by going to anchor.fm forward slash California Underground. There is a button for message. You can use your phone and just record a call. And it's nice because one, you're not on the spot. You don't have to worry about being on the spot on live radio. You can re-record. You don't like it. That's fine. You can take it down. You can say, okay, well, let me try it again. You get multiple chances to get your question exactly right, exactly how you want it. So it's like you calling into the show. Um, I've had a couple callers and it's a lot of fun when I get to hear people, I get to hear their voices and incorporate them into the show. So I'd love to hear more of that. And, uh, finally just make sure you subscribe, review and share with other people because the more this is shared, uh, the more people can get to know about this, the more people can engage in this, the more people can be a part of what this movement is. Who knows what this movement is? Like I said, Maybe this is the time, maybe this is the perfect coalescing of all these factors between the lockdowns, between Gavin Newsom, between Mike Garcia flipping the district from blue to red. Maybe we've hit that tipping point where conservatives and independents and you know even common sense Democrats, I'll give it to common sense Democrats out there who are just, you know, they're not crazy leftists who want to shove progressive ideals down your throat. They're just common sense Democrats. Maybe it's a time we can all start to work together to kind of push back on all this tyranny and what the left is doing here and work together. So with that, stay safe, stay healthy, and I will see you on the next one. Later.
Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 